Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that promise as we come to your word this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see your light shining and your direction given to us from your word today. Father, we thank you that your word, as we read in Isaiah 55, does not come back to you without accomplishing the purpose for which um, you sent it. So we pray that today your purposes would be purposes of grace for us. God, your word can harden us if we hear it again and again and again and we refuse to obey. It only serves as a witness against us at your judgment. But we pray, Father, that today your purposes would be different for us, that they would be purposes of grace, purposes uh, to give us hope and a future, to point us to Christ and to change us more and more into his image. So do this for us, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together James 3.13 down through chapter 4, verse 12. James 3.13 through 4.12. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? I want to just call attention to the fact that there are just two kinds of people that James speaks of in these verses, particularly verses 13 and 14. Just two kinds of people. Verse 13, there's the person who's wise and understanding and who demonstrates his wisdom or her wisdom and understanding by deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So there's one person who's wise and understanding and they demonstrate that in the way they live not just in the way they talk or how smart they sound. They demonstrate it in the way they live. And the way they live is a lifestyle of gentleness. That's one kind of person. A wise person who demonstrates it by living a lifestyle of gentleness. And then the other kind of person, verse 14, is a person who has bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in their heart, who is arrogant. Two different kinds of people. The gentleness of wisdom Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, on the other hand. And if you just keep your finger in the book of James for a moment and turn all the way back to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25. In 1 Samuel 25, there's a a wonderful story that puts side by side these two different kinds of characters. And I think it will be very helpful for us to read it this morning. In this story, there are three main characters. Two of them fall into the camp of the the bitterly jealous, the selfishly ambitious, the arrogant. 
And the other character falls into the camp of the wise and understanding person who lives in the gentleness of wisdom. Let me read to you first about the arrogant and the jealous um, characters in verses 2 through 13. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel... Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. It came about that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I've heard that you have that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Let's just pause there for a moment. Two men who fit into the category of James chapter 3 verse 14. Nabal knew who David was. This wasn't an honest question. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? He obviously knows who David is. He knows who his father is. David was a famous man at this point, though he was still fleeing from Saul. It's not an honest question. It's a jealous question. David was a very popular man, and Nabal was a selfish man. So it's a jealous question, and it's a selfish question. Who's David? He's acting like he doesn't know. I'm not going to help this guy. And we read earlier in the passage that he was a harsh man and evil in his dealings. His name means fool. Others were ahead of him, and so he became jealous, and he became selfish kept everything to himself, became bitter when other people uh, seemed to have the upper hand, and bitter and selfish when other people came to him for help. And then David comes along, and we're going to see David's anger even more so in the next verses, but David comes along, and he responds with great arrogance as well, doesn't he? Well, if, if Nabal's not going to give me what I asked for, then I'll just take 400 men with me, and we'll go cut his head off. David doesn't come out very uh, pretty in this passage either. Now, we know that there are cases where David was very gentle and he had wisdom. But in this passage, David is an arrogant, uh, quick-to-judge, angry man. They are both a picture of what James is describing in verse 14. But now read on, verses 14 through 28 of 1 Samuel 25. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. 
When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame, and please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. There's a wise woman, a gentle woman, a woman who understood that a gentle answer turns away wrath, a woman who was a peacemaker, as James speaks about in verse 18. So you have Nabal who's jealous and selfish and who doesn't want to help anybody. He's only looking out for number one and he's a fool. You have David who whenever he's crossed becomes angry and gathers an army with him to go cut someone's head off. And you have Abigail who has the gentleness of wisdom and is a peacemaker. Which one are you? I know we all may be different characters at different times, but in general, which one are you? Nabal, selfish and arrogant, only thinking about yourself. David, vengeful, spiteful, quick to wrath, quick to anger. Or Abigail, the peacemaker, who had gentleness and wisdom. I hope that some of you are Abigail, but many of us, especially in this culture in which we live that teaches us that everything is about us and that we have all these rights and that everyone ought to treat us in a certain way and when they don't or when they call us names, we can sue them and, and make a big stink about it on television and everything else. Most of us in this culture have been bred up to be like Nabal and like David. And as I look at these three characters, I see in myself probably more of David than I do the other two. Quick to become frustrated, quick to become uh, resentful, angry, quick to respond in an angry way. Which one are you? Do you have the gentleness of wisdom or do you live with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition and arrogance in your heart? Two kinds of people. And these two kinds of people, he goes on to say, possess two kinds of wisdom. The people who are bitter and jealous and selfish and ambitious and arrogant possess wisdom, verse 15, that is earthly, natural, and demonic. It's the same idea you see elsewhere in the Scripture, um, that our, our problems with temptation come from the world, they're earthly, they come from our flesh, they are natural, or they come from the devil, they are demonic. The world, the flesh, the devil, earthly, natural, demonic. James is saying the same thing that we see other places in Scripture. We live in a world, as we've said, that teaches us to be like Nabal and like David, that teaches us to be selfish, that teaches us to look out for number one, that teaches us to retaliate. I mean, you watch sitcoms in the evening. I don't see very many of them, but much of the humor that's on television today is people retaliating towards one another. Isn't that so? I mean, many of the movies we, we watch are about retaliation and revenge. And we champion that as a virtue in our culture. So the world, the, the earthly um, culture that we live in tempts us to be this way. That's one kind of wisdom. Then he says it's natural. The flesh tempts us to be this way. I mean, we could live uh, in the most uh, beautiful culture that, that ever could be imagined on the face of the earth. And because we are sinners, we would naturally be selfish and arrogant, wouldn't we? So it's our natural wisdom also that makes us this way. Let's not simply blame the world. Say if we could get out of, out of the world, then all of a sudden we'd be different. No, the reason why the world is the way the world is is because we live in it. We've made it this way. So it's our natural wisdom also that is arrogant and selfish and bitter and so on. And then he also says it's demonic. That ought to frighten you. When you're looking out for number one, when you're seeking revenge, when you're retaliating, you're acting exactly the way the devil would have you act. 
Now let me just pause and say this. Since this wisdom comes from the world of flesh and the devil, we know it doesn't come from God, right? Ambition, selfishness, arrogance, they don't come from God. Let's not fool ourselves, especially men. Some of us men are prone to think, and we've even been taught, that uh, many of our bad characteristics, God made us this way so that we could really be leaders. No, James says that people who are bitter, who are jealous, who are selfishly ambitious, who are arrogant, they may be leaders, and God may use them as leaders, but that bitterness and jealousy and selfishness and ambition and arrogance doesn't come from God. It comes from the world, it comes from the flesh, and it comes from the devil, not from God. I tend to think that way. Well, because I am who I am, I can be a leader. No, I can be a leader if God makes me a leader. And if I am the way I am, which is pushy and selfish much of the time, God didn't make me that way. I'm that way selfishly. But then the second group of people have a different kind of wisdom. Their wisdom doesn't come from the world of flesh and the devil. He says, verse, 13, uh, verse 17, that uh, Abigail kind of wisdom comes from above. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If Nabal kind of wisdom comes from the earth and from the flesh and from the devil, then Abigail kind of wisdom must come from above. And that's what he says in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. If you truly have God's wisdom, this is the way that you will begin to live. Now, you're a sinner and your sanctification will take place over time, but this is the way you will begin to live if you have wisdom from above. If you don't live this way, you're a fool. You're a Nabal. That's what James is saying. Let me just notice a few things about this list of qualities. We don't have time to look at everyone in detail, but notice first that he says the wisdom from above is first pure. And most of what he says is that the wisdom from above is, is us being nice to others. We are peaceable. We are gentle, we're reasonable, and so on. And that's good. The wisdom from above makes us nice and kind and gentle towards other people. But he says it's first pure. In other words, it's not enough uh, to simply be a nice person. Does that make sense? I mean, there are a lot of nice people in the world simply because of the way they were brought up or the culture that they're from or because they uh, they don't like conflict. And so there are a lot of reasons why you may be nice. And so you can't simply tell, oh, I have wisdom from above just because I'm not uh, an argumentative person. He says the wisdom from above is first pure. In other words, you're living in holiness in addition to being a kind person. Holiness across the board. That's one thing to note. The second thing, just briefly, is to note that this list, pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and so on, looks very much like the Beatitudes. Remember, Jesus said, blessed are the, uh, uh, the pure in heart. He said, blessed are those who are peacemakers. He said, blessed are the gentle, the meek. He said, blessed are the merciful, and so on. Many of the things James lists here are the same things Jesus speaks about in the Beatitudes. And, and the Beatitudes all begin with blessed. So these qualities, this wisdom from above James, that James speaks about, Jesus says this is the blessed life. If, you, if you're blessed by God, you'll be living this way. And if you want to be blessed by God, you will live this way. And we noted when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount a couple of years ago that the word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes is the same word that's also translated happy. And we said that's not the main translation of those verses But that is a secondary idea that those who live uh, in mercy, those who are pure in heart, uh, those who are peacemakers are happy. They may not have everything that they want all the time, but this is the way to be happy in the world is to live with this kind of wisdom. So it's a blessed life. It's a happy life. And James says it's a wise life. It just makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense to be like Nabal, does it? Everyone in the world will turn against you. And most of all, God is against you. God is opposed to the proud. So it just makes sense to live this way. And then he says, finally, that these two kinds of people who have two kinds of wisdom produce two kinds of fruit. Nabal, the man who is jealous and bitter and selfish and ambitious, produces, verse 16, jealousy, uh, or excuse me, disorder and every evil thing. Disorder and every evil thing. One of the words that we use a lot in our culture is the word mess or messy. Relationships are messy. My family situation is a mess. The relationships at work are all tangled up in knots. 
It's just a mess. Disorder. It's the same thing James is talking about. If your family is a mess, if your relationships are a mess, if your workplace is a mess, the reason is because either you or someone else, probably you since God's talking to you this morning, is selfish and ambitious and greedy and arrogant and so on. That's why relationships are a mess. If people weren't selfish, if people weren't ambitious, if people weren't bitter or jealous or arrogant, there wouldn't be disorder in our relationships, would there? So we need to stop and we need to look at our lives. We need to not just go, well, I think I'm probably like Abigail. I mean, I'm a pretty nice guy. No, look at the fruit. Are there messed up relationships all over your life? If there are, probably something's wrong with the person who's in all those relationships. Now I realize that we do what we can do to be at peace with all men, and some people just won't make peace with us. But if you have messed up relationships across the board, chances are that's your fault, at least partly your fault. And you need to begin to ask yourself, where did it go wrong? Where have I been bitter or jealous or selfish or ambitious or arrogant? And you need to repent and you need to go to the person and you need to ask forgiveness and you need to, to move forward. But that's one kind of fruit. If you have wisdom from the earth, from your flesh and from the devil, it will lead to broken relationships, a busted up family or workplace and so on. But then the other kind of fruit, verse 18, is the fruit of righteousness. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The seed is peace. The fruit is righteousness. If you sow peace, the fruit that comes is righteousness. Now, he's not saying that you gain righteousness with God in a saving sense. You don't save yourself by making peace with others. But you live righteously. You begin to live in the image of Jesus by being a peacemaker. If you want to know how to become like Christ as a believer, one of the chief things is that you be a peacemaker. Isn't that what he came to do? Now, we know Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword between brother and sister and so on because the gospel divides people. But Jesus' ultimate mission was a peacemaking mission. The Bible says that we were enemies of God, that God's wrath was against us, and that Christ died to make peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' whole mission in the world was to make peace between us and God. And if we want to be like Christ, if we want to live righteously, as James is speaking of here, the way that we produce that fruit is begin to begin to live as a peacemaker. So are you a peacemaker or are you selfishly ambitious, bitterly jealous and arrogant? Be honest with yourself and think about the answer. Now, the reality is that all of us know where we stand. And the reality is all of us know where we need to be different. And the reality is all of us know that it's much better to be Abigail than it is to be Nabal. Nobody questions that. Nobody doubts that. Even unbelievers understand this. But the reality also is that though we know this, though we know that we ought to be gentle and we ought to have this wisdom from above, all of us still bicker and fight. All of us still argue and become jealous. You say, well, I don't have very many arguments. Some people don't argue very much outwardly. They don't become bitter outwardly. Some people just become bitter inwardly. Some people... Um, are selfish to the point where they don't take what they want or force others to do what they want. They're selfish to the point that they pout or their feelings are always hurt. So all of us are selfish. All of us have this, this pride in us that thinks that we're the most important. It comes out in different ways, but all of us do it. So the question is why? If we know that we ought to be like Abigail and not like Nabal, that we ought to have the gentleness of wisdom instead of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Why are we always fighting and quarreling? What is the source, James says in verse 1, of our quarrels and conflicts? It's an important question. If we know what we ought to do and we don't do it, it's sin. James has told us that. If we know what we ought to do and we don't do it, why don't we do it? Why don't we do what we know? Well, he tells us, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Three things he says there. What's the source of our quarrels? First, our pleasures. Verse 1. 
Second, our lust, verse 2. And third, our envy, verse 2. Three things. Pleasures. He's not talking yet about sinful pleasures, just I like lasagna. Lasagna can make you sin, can it? I mean, some of you are going to sin with lasagna or some other kind of food in about a half an hour probably. Some of you are sinning with it right now because you're thinking about that instead of thinking about this. Food is not bad. It's a pleasure, but it can make us sin. Our wives can make us sin. Our children, they can't make us sin, but we can idolize them so that it is sin. Our children can be idolized so that they are causing us to sin or our idolization of them is causing us to sin. Any pleasure that's not in and of itself sinful can cause you to sin. That's what he's saying, first of all. Then he goes on and speaks about lust. I think probably there he's more specifically thinking about sinful pleasures or even when our pleasures uh, change over into sin. Lust is similar to envy that he's going to talk about later in the verse. But sinful desires, we all understand that. And then envy. Envy is a sin in and of itself, but then it causes quarrels and conflicts, he says. Think about it. The whole reason why David was out in the wilderness with Nabal's sheep is because David was running from Saul. And why was David running from Saul? Well, because David was a mighty warrior and the the young pretty girls came out and sung a song about David. David has slain his thousands and his ten thousands. And Saul became jealous. I'm the king. I'm the leader. And they're singing about David. And so he began to throw spears at David and plot David's death and David had to run for his life. Envy leads to conflict. And you can see that in your own life. If you're envious of someone, you're not going to be very kind to them. If there's a woman at the office who has the figure you want or the clothes you want or the life you want, you become envious of her. You're not very nice to her. It's the way it works. So he lists these things, pleasures, lust, envy, that cause quarrels and conflicts. But let me just note this. The source is always you. It's your pleasures that cause quarrels and conflicts. It's your lust and it's your envy. Do you see that? Your pleasures, you lust and do not have. You are envious. The source is always you, not the other person. If you're in a quarrel and conflict, it's always your fault. Now, it may be the other person's fault as well, but it's always your fault. So we can't say things like, well, the husband and the wife come in for a counseling session. Why are you two arguing all the time? Well, she makes me crazy. No, it's your fault. Or... Two people in the workplace are bickering and the boss says, what is the problem here? Well, he, no, it's your fault. It's always your fault, James says. And it's never your job to point out the other person's fault, though they may be at fault as well. It's always your fault and your job to point the finger at yourself. And then notice this. This is most important. What is the source of your quarrels? It's your fault. It's your lusts, envies, and pleasures. But look what he says. The key is you quarrel and fight when you don't get what you want. Verse 2, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is the key. Anytime you are quarreling with someone, or even in your heart you have your feelings hurt with someone and you're bitter towards them, the reason, James says, is always because you haven't gotten what you want. Whatever it may be, it may be a pleasure, it may not be a bad thing, but you didn't get it and now you're upset. It may be a lust, it may be envy, but somehow, some way, you didn't get what you want and that's why you're so upset. And you may fight about something completely different, but the reason why you're fighting, the reason why there's angst in your heart is because you didn't get what you want. I'll give you an example of what I mean. This week, um, um, Toby and I had a quarrel and a conflict. Um, Mostly it was me quarreling with her um, and and not her quarreling with me. But there was a quarrel and a conflict. And I was upset and I almost couldn't figure out why I was upset. So just about everything that happened over about a 30-minute span made me very upset. And I came to the office and I was upset. And that's not a good thing when you're trying to prepare a sermon and you're upset. But I said, well, I'm just going to go and I'm going to read this passage for this week. And I sat down and I read it and I thought, oh, no. I can't even, I mean, I can't prepare any sermon, but I certainly can't preach a sermon on this without getting things right with my wife. But I began to think, why am I so upset? What is it that I didn't get that I wanted? 
Well, just before we started quarreling and, and having conflict over just about everything that happened, what had happened was she told me, well, tonight we're going to do this thing with this person. I said, I kind of wanted to watch or listen to the baseball game tonight. Well, we really, we already said we would do this. You said you would do this. I said that we would do this, and so we need to go. I said, well, okay. Do you want to go? I said, no, I don't want to go. I want to listen to the baseball game, but I know I should go. And so I went. And it was the right thing, and it was a good thing. It was an enjoyable time. But, but for about the next half hour before God showed me what was going on in my heart, and even, and even lingering after that, I was quarreling with my wife about totally unrelated things, and the reason was because I hadn't gotten what I wanted. Nothing wrong with a baseball game. It's a pleasure, but I hadn't got what I wanted, and so I was fighting. So we need to ask ourselves when we're quarreling and fighting with other people, first we need to say, I know it's my fault, but secondly, we need to trace it back to the root and say, what is it that I didn't get that I wanted? And it may be something totally unrelated to the quarrel. You may be quarreling because the person didn't set the table correctly, but what you're really upset about is that you didn't get to go to the baseball game. What is it that I'm not getting that I want that's making me quarrel? And then beyond that, why am I so stinking selfish? Why do I think that my wants are more important than everybody else's needs or than everybody else's wants? That's the key. When you're quarreling, it's because you haven't gotten something that you want. And, Lord willing, if you can figure out what it is, you can confess that, you can deal with it, you can face up to it, and hopefully, by God's grace, you can conquer it and put away your selfishness and put away the quarreling. But let me ask a second question. The first is, what is the source of your quarrels? Don't get what you want. Why don't we sometimes get what we want? Why is it that way? I mean, doesn't God want us to be happy? Why is it that we sometimes don't get what we want? Well, there are more answers in these verses. Look at the last half of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. There's one reason why we don't get what we want. We just don't pray. We don't ask God. We don't trust God, and therefore we don't ask Him for what we need. Then in verses 3 through 5, he gives a second reason. First, prayerlessness. Second, selfishness. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We need to hear that really well in this culture. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now, the bare bones fact is in verse 3, isn't it? We don't always have what we want because we ask God only out of selfish reasons. We're not seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're seeking first our kingdom. And so we're asking for things, and God doesn't answer because it's not what's best because we're asking only for ourselves. So that's the second reason why you may not have what you want. First, because you don't ask. Second, because you ask selfishly. But then he goes on and he starts talking about adulteresses and friendship with the world and so on. What does that have to do with asking selfishly? Well, precisely this. God is supposed to be everything to us. Christ is supposed to be our husband. We are supposed to desire our husband over all other things. And when we start coming to God with these selfish prayer requests, what we're saying to him is, God, I don't desire you and Christ above all other things. I just desire you because you can give me all other things. You see that? And so the picture is of, of a wife coming to her husband and saying, hey, I'd like you to meet my new boyfriend. And by the way, can you help him out a little bit financially? He's on hard times right now. That's what we're doing with God. God, I, I love these other things more than you. I'm asking you for selfish things, not, not for your kingdom and your righteousness first. And by the way, even though I, I don't love you the most, even though I love these other things, God, would you bless these things or give me these things? And that makes no sense. I read a, a story this week about a, a, a young girl, a student, college student in Scotland who went missing. And um, she was eventually murdered. But as the story went, um, she was missing and... Um, when she went missing, she had a lover who began to get very nervous because she was missing. He couldn't find her. And because he began to get very nervous, his wife found out that he was committing adultery. And she was very upset, obviously. 
And the guy waited for a few days, and the girl never turned up. And then the police began to search, and this man um, began to go out and search for this college girl that he had been having an affair with. And he asked his wife to come help him look for her. Unbelievable. This is what we do with God. God, I know I have all these other lovers. I love all these other things more than you. I love your gifts more than I love you. But can you, can you help me get some more of them? Can you, help, can you help these things that I love more than you to work out better for me? It's crazy. Why would God answer those kind of requests? He won't. And not because he's selfish, but because he wants what's best for us. And he knows that those things won't ultimately satisfy. And so when we come to God with selfish requests, we are like adulteresses, bringing our new boyfriend before the Lord, asking him to bless. And God says, I won't do it. For your own good, I won't do it. So that's the second reason why we don't have what we want, because we are selfish, and God won't bless our selfishness. But then he gives a third reason why we don't have what we want in verse 6. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now we'll come back to the part about giving grace to the humble, but notice, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to you. You don't expect God probably to be giving you all sorts of blessings that you want. So the third way that, or the third reason that we don't get what we want is because we're proud. And I don't think he means the kind of pride that says, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. Everybody notice me. He's speaking about the pride that all of us have, that all of us are born with, that says, I can do this. I mean, God will come along and help me, but I can do this. Sometimes it leads to prayerlessness, verse 2, and sometimes it leads to prayers that we pray but don't really mean because we think that we've got it all under control or we think that we've got to get it all under control. I think that's the kind of pride he's speaking about, self-reliance. And if we're self-reliant, we get God's opposition, not God's answers to our prayers. So if we're prayerless, if we're selfish, or if we're self-reliant, we won't have what we want. God won't give it to us for our own good. Now let me think back through what we've said logically. When we are prayerless, selfish, or self-reliant, God doesn't give us what we want. And the result is frustration, angst, disappointment. Because we haven't gotten what we want. And the result of that not getting what we want and that frustration is quarrels and conflicts. So do you see that quarrels and conflicts don't start with quarrels and conflicts? And quarrels and conflicts don't start with us not getting what we want. They start with us not loving God the most. They start with prayerlessness, selfishness, and self-reliance. If you are fighting and bickering with someone in your home or someone at school or someone at work, that's just a symptom. That's not the key problem. That's just a symptom, a bump on the skin that's showing you there's something wrong between me and God. I'm not praying as I should. I'm not trusting God as I should. I'm relying on myself. I'm being selfish. Something is wrong between me and God that's causing me not to get what I want. And when I don't get what I want, I can't very well fight with God. That doesn't work too well, so I fight with everybody else. That's how it works. Quarrels and conflicts are uh, simply symptoms of godlessness. They're not the root problem themselves. Now, they are a problem that must be confessed and repented of, but... The line of confession and repentance has to go all the way back to the relationship between us and God. So, if we must confess, if we must repent, if we must get back to this source, then the question is, finally, what do we need to do practically about this? If we're quarreling and fighting, and we realize it's because we're not getting what we want, and we realize we're not getting what we want because we're not putting God first, what do we need to do? And James, in verses 7 through 12, gives us seven bullet points. And I want to handle them as bullet points. I won't give you seven more sermons. Um, but I do want to, to look at each one of them briefly. What do we do when we find quarrels and conflicts demonstrating that we don't love God as we ought? Number one, he says, submit therefore to God. Submit to God, verse 7. I believe perhaps what he means is, He means submit to God in a general sense, but I believe a specific application is submit to God's providence. When you don't get what you want, believe that that means God knows what's best for you and He's going to give you something better. It may not seem better to you, 
but it will be better for you. Just like when the doctor says, well, you're sick and you need a shot. That doesn't sound like what you want, but it's best for you. And you submit to the doctor. So the first thing James says is when you're not getting what you want and it's causing you to quarrel, you need to back up and say God is in control. God knows what's best. God wants what's best. I'm going to submit to his plan. And if I don't get what I want, I'm going to believe that that means that I'm getting something that's better for me. That's the first thing. Submit to God. Second, resist the devil. Verse 7b, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, he said the wisdom that causes us to quarrel and fight is demonic. It comes from the devil. The devil tempts us to be selfishly ambitious, doesn't he? You see this most clearly in the temptation of Jesus, right? Shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, hey, if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you everything. He's tempting him to be selfishly ambitious. Jesus resisted the devil with the word of God and the devil left him. Isn't that great? Jesus, is, is a, uh, Jesus' life there resisting the devil is a perfect example of what we must do. When the devil comes along and he will and tells you, you don't have to listen to that. You don't have to stand in this line patiently. You're an American. You don't have to take that from him or listen to that from her. They can't tell you what to do. You resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Thirdly, he says, draw near to God. Draw near to God, verse 8a, and he will draw near to you. When you're facing temptation or when you know that you will face temptation, which all of us will, you draw near to God. You draw near to him for help against the temptation. Obviously, you draw near and you say, God, I need help. I'm tempted to fight. I'm tempted to quarrel. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. Help me. But then you also draw near to God for satisfaction, right? I mean, the the quickest way to stop being an adulteress is to leave your adulterous partner and draw near to your husband, right? And I think that's what James is speaking about here. If you've seen that you've loved the world and become an enemy of God, become an adulteress, draw near to your husband. Learn to love your husband. And you won't be tempted to go to the world again. No woman that really loves her husband is tempted to adultery. And the same thing for a man. No person that really draws near to God and loves God is tempted to commit spiritual adultery at least half so much as those who stay at arm's length from their father. So draw near to God and the promise is he will draw near to you. If you leave your adulterous relationship and draw near to your husband, He will come and welcome you with open arms. This is our God. So we draw near to God for help and we draw near to Him for satisfaction, for Him to be our all. These first three things are all things that you do uh, either before you're tempted or when you're in the midst of temptation. If you're tempted to fight and quarrel, verses 7 and 8, at least the first half of verse 8. But then I think he shifts in the middle of verse 8 and and begins to give us some practical hints for what to do after we've fallen into temptation. And all of us fall because we don't submit to God, we don't resist the devil, and we don't draw near to God as we should. So we all fall. What do we do when we fall? Well, verse 8b, number 4, we cleanse our hands and our hearts. We cleanse our hands and we purify our hearts. How do we get clean? Well, we go to the fountain that's been opened once and for all for sinners, the blood of Christ. That's how we get clean. If you fall in, the first thing you do is you confess. You come to God and say, look, I'm dirty. In my heart, in my hands, I'm dirty. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness again. Please, Father, based on what Christ has done, forgive me. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he's faithful and just to make us clean, to change us, to to get the junk off of our hands. And that's what he's saying as well, I believe. Not only come to Christ for forgiveness, but come to Christ to give you the strength to live clean. And part of that means that if your hands are going to be clean towards other people, you've got to go and make restitution, make things right with those that you've been quarreling with. Some of you have been quarreling with people this week and you just walked out of the office or walked out of the house and just left it as it is and your hearts aren't clean and your hands aren't clean. 
You haven't come to Christ for forgiveness. And the reason why I know that is because if you'd really come to him for forgiveness, you'd have gone to the other person as well. Because you can't pray, forgive us our debts, unless you also pray in the same way that we forgive our debtors. If you are not willing to go to the other person and say, I need your forgiveness, then you haven't really sought and found forgiveness from God through Christ. But you may. You may find forgiveness in Christ, and you may find the strength to go and make sure that you make things right with the other person. So cleanse your hands and your heart, he says. Then number five, mourn for your sin. Mourn for your sin. Verse nine, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. I mean, that just sounds terrible, doesn't it? That doesn't sound like what most people would tell you to do. Even most Christians would tell you, now, if God has forgiven you, then you should forgive yourself and just forget about it. No, James doesn't say that. He says, first, go to God and get clean, and then keep on mourning for your sin. Isn't that interesting? Just because we're forgiven by God doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel awful about the way we act. We should feel awful about our sins, even though we are forgiven. We should feel worse about our sins when we're forgiven because we of all people know how serious sin is because we of all people know what it took to pay the price for it. James is saying, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. We ought to mourn for our sins. And as I've already alluded to, the best way to do that is to survey the wondrous cross. To remember what it costs to pay the price for our sins so that we remember how severe sin really is. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, all my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. In other words, I hate my self-reliance when I look at the cross. You want to hate your sin, don't look at your sin so much because when you look at sin, it, it makes you like it. You want to hate your sin, look at the cross And remember how heinous sin really is. So James says, get clean. Be thankful that you're clean. Live in freedom, but still hate your sin. Then he says, verse 10, humble yourself. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Once you've fallen, you've come to God for forgiveness You're mourning for your sin. You hate your sin. You also need to continue to humble yourself and continue to remind yourself that you are not number one. Continue to remind yourself that the world doesn't revolve around you and your needs and your desires and your likes and your taste buds and so on. So that when you don't get what you want, it's okay. Because I've humbled myself. And James promises, God promises through James, that when we humble ourselves in the presence of God, He will exalt us. That doesn't mean if we humble ourselves that God will make us great in front of our enemies and and make them all applaud us. It doesn't mean that if we humble ourselves, then God will give us all the things that we were wanting that cause us to need to humble ourselves. What it means is if you humble yourself, if you're broken in the dust, if you're mourning for sin, God is not going to leave you destitute and depressed and in despair. He'll lift you up. Mourning for sin is very real and we must do it, but mourning for sin leads to joy in Christ. You can't rejoice in Christ unless you mourn for your sin. You can't love much unless you've been forgiven much. So if you humble yourself, if you hate your sin, if you confess your sin, Christ will exalt you, meaning he will give you great joy in your forgiveness. Those who are forgiven much love much. And seventh and finally, what do you do? Tame your tongue. Verses 11 and 12. Tame your tongue. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Now, James here is not saying that we never hold one another accountable. If he were saying that, then many things that we read in the New Testament would not be true. We are to hold one another accountable. Later in the book, he's going to tell us to do that in chapter 5. But what he's saying is we ought not to be judgmental people who are hiding behind every bush like the Pharisees and the people on hee-haw waiting to jump out and tell people, listen, you failed again, look at you. That's like Nabal. That's like David. We're not to be that kind of person. We're not to be judgmental people. We're not to be judges of the law. We're to be doers of the law mainly. 
So put it in our modern context. You're first to be a good citizen before you can be a judge. I mean, if you can't obey the laws yourself, you have no right judging anybody else. Who wants a judge who's constantly in jail himself, right? We wouldn't vote for anybody like that to be our, our county judges or our city judges and so on. We wouldn't do that. Jesus is, James is saying the same thing. If you want to help a brother take the speck out of his eye, you take the log out of your own eye first. You be a citizen first, a doer of the law first, and not a judge of the law. So let me just summarize what James is saying here. The main thing is this. Quarrels, conflicts, are not the disease, they are the symptom. The disease is that we are selfish and that we have put ourselves first and God further down the list. That's the problem. We have not loved God as we ought. We have not sought God as we ought. We have not prayed as we ought. So we don't get what we think we want. And when we don't get what we think we want, we fight with other people. That's the main lesson this morning. Selfish prayers, self-reliance, prayerlessness, all of these are spiritual adultery, which leads to emptiness, which leads to quarreling with other people. And we have these practical things to do, but the main thing is this. John Newton said it. um, It was in the film about William Wilberforce, and it's a wonderful phrase. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. That's the solution, that we look to Christ. We come to Him for cleansing, and then we take action based upon that cleansing. But we look to Christ. We don't try with our own efforts to clean our own hands. But we look to Christ, who alone can forgive us and who can change us from Nabal into Abigail, who can change us from ourselves into the image of Christ. Let's pray that he would. Lord Jesus, we look to you as our example of gentleness and wisdom, and we see how far we fall short. We look to you as the fountain for forgiveness and cleansing, and we thank you that you have obeyed your Father to the point of death on a cross so that we might be forgiven for our quarreling and our spiritual adultery against you. And Jesus, we look to you as our constant source of strength to help us change. So forgive us and help us love you most so that we'd put an end to our quarreling and fighting. And Lord, we pray uh, each as individuals. I pray as an individual now and and uh, I hope we all do in our hearts. God, I ask you to forgive me as an individual for my quarreling and fighting that shows that I'm not satisfied in you. I pray that you forgive and change my heart. We pray that you do these things for us through Jesus and for his sake.